Amen. You may be seated. It's just good to be with my church family this morning. I love my children. Like, really, really love them. If you, uh, if you hang out with me very long, you're going to hear about my children. I'm going to tell you stories about my children. I'm kind of one of those dads. I'm that guy, you know, that kind of tells you stories against your will. Like, you, you're just, and you kind of just have to agree with me. And if you don't, if I don't feel like I'm getting the response from you that I want, I'll just tell another one. And I'll just keep telling them until I kind of get from you the feedback and the interest that I'm looking for. Aaron's laughing because he knows I'm telling the truth. I stop by his office all the time and say, let me tell you about what Gracie did. But as much as I love my children, one of the things that I've come to realize about my children, I always theologically knew this was true, but being a dad now and being a dad of two and seeing it twice, I've become totally and utterly convinced that my children are sinners, right? So, so in our home, lying is a capital offense, okay? So, so what that means by is, is we believe that the Bible instructs us to spank our children for the good of our children. And so in our home, there are certain levels of offense that once you reach that level of, of offense, that's a, that's a capital offense, okay? That means that, that, that the pain of discipline is to come upon you, right? And one of the things, too, is I've, you know, when you're growing up, you always hear that whole line of this hurts me more than it hurts you. And you're like, give me a break, man. You're holding the belt, dude. Like, what are you talking about? But as a dad, you kind of come to understand this, don't you? Because you see, my, my little girl, Gracie, a few weeks ago, we were playing. It's just she and I. And we're having a great time. I mean, we're laughing. I don't even really remember what we were playing or what we were doing, but we're laughing and we're cutting up. And right in the middle of that, she tells me a lie about something that doesn't even matter. And I know that she's lying. And so I ask her about it. Yeah, daddy, I lied. Honey, why? Why did you lie? We're like, I'm not angry. I'm like, what's the situation? There was no, we're playing a game, man. I don't know. I don't know, daddy. And I'm thinking in my mind, I've got to spank this beautiful little girl with blue eyes. We're laughing. We're having fun. But am I going to be a man of my word or not be a man of my word? Like, am I going to teach her that, that, the deception of her heart is wrong and wicked and destructive or not? Like, you know, all these categories in my brain, like, you know, and preachers process things weird like that. I know most of you aren't thinking about that, but like, that's in my brain. I'm thinking like Jeremiah 17 or can I just let this one slide a little bit, you know? And, uh, and so I said, what does daddy have to do? She says, you, you have to spank me, daddy. I, I said, honey, do you not know how this breaks my heart? Do you not see that this, this is not what I want to do? That we're having fun. We're enjoying each other. Do you see? And I disciplined, I disciplined my little girl. I didn't discipline her because I was angry at her. In fact, I wasn't. I didn't discipline her because um, I wanted to be vindicated in some sense because honestly, everything inside of me didn't want to do that. I only disciplined her because I love her. 
I only disciplined her because I genuinely want what's best for her, not just what's easiest for me. And that's a hard lesson for a dad, and that's a hard lesson for a child. And I think it's in that spirit that we come to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. As we hear about this, this type of gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, devastating love, redemptive love as it is by the Father through the church into the life of the disciples. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 15 through 20 together this morning. So that's Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's word this morning? Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, God's inerrant word says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything uh, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. Now, the thing about this passage is that this passage can really be viewed from a negative perspective. As a matter of fact, I think most people that are aware of this passage are only aware of, of what it says, not the context into which it is spoken. So it's our natural inclination to hear this passage and to hear it through the lens of cruelty. To hear it through the words, uh, the, the, through the lens of, 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 of vindication and revenge, and, and anger. But the truth is, is if you place this passage in its context, it is actually quite beautiful and powerful. It teaches us not about cruelty and vengeance, rather it teaches us about love and mercy and grace. You see, remember what's happening in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is a, is a passage, it's a, it's a discourse about life within the community of faith. That is life within the church of Christ. The not the denomination, the, the big picture church of Christ. All right, y'all tracking with me? And he's talking about the relationships that we have with each other. If you'll remember the way that this all came about was, is there was conflict among the disciples. Their rivalry had, had bubbled up among the disciples and they wanted to know who was the greatest disciple of them all. Who is it that Jesus saw as being the greatest of his 12? And Jesus responds to that by calling a little boy into the midst of them. And he says, this little boy who has no entitlement, he has no position of stature. He has no, uh, no hope of, of being recognized for any type of greatness. In fact, this little boy is totally dependent on other people, not just for his ability to, to be happy, but for his very ability to survive. And he says, this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. 
This kind of humility, this kind of, of awareness of your dependence, this kind of awareness that you are not entitled to anything, that you, you hold no rank. So it's, it's those who, who empty themselves, it's those who are last in their own mind that are first in the kingdom of heaven. And so then he takes the opportunity to tell a story. And he tells the story of a shepherd who owns a modest flock of a hundred sheep. And out of this modest flock of a hundred sheep, the shepherd realizes that one of them has went astray. One of them is wayward. One of them has wandered. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes and he goes in pursuit of the one. With all of his heart, he goes looking for this one as though this one sheep was all that he had to his name. And in pursuit of the one, he finds him. And when he finds him, he is not cruel with him. When he finds him, he does not berate him. When he finds him, he does not hit him. And when he finds him, he rejoices. He rejoices. He celebrates. And Jesus says that this is the picture of glory. This is the picture of heaven. That our heavenly father rejoices more over the one that is returned, the one that is found, the wandering, wayward, straying sheep that is restored to the fold than the 99 that never left. And the lesson is clear. The lesson is simple. That not that Jesus despises the 99 or loves the 99 less, but in fact that he loves every single one of us that much that he will pursue us and he will rejoice when we are restored within his redemptive community. And that's the picture of Matthew 15, 18, 15 through 20. This is about the pursuit of the wayward sheep this is about the, 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 the uh, carrying out of the Father's love. This is about the shepherd in pursuit of the one that has fallen away from the 99. See, this isn't about cruelty. This isn't about vengeance. This isn't about anger. No, this is about grace. This is about love. This is about mercy. This is, a, this is about deliverance. This is about rescue. This is about, about going in pursuit of the one, that the one might be made well, that the one might be rescued from his waywardness, rescued from his sin. See, in the context, this is beautiful. That God will not quit on you. God will not quit on you. And because God will not quit on his children, his children must not quit on one another. In verse 15, Jesus begins by saying, if your brother sins against you. Now, there is some, some debate, that phrase against you. If you're reading a New American Standard, maybe an NIV, there, a lot of the translations actually don't even include that phrase against you. There's a, a lot of debate as to whether that's original to the text or not. If you'll remember what we talked about when we looked at verse, uh, verses 10 through uh, 14, we said verse 11 wasn't in there because it wasn't in the original manuscripts, most likely the oldest manuscripts that we had. Well, in this one, there's a bit more debate. And this one, there are some of the old manuscripts that have it and some of the old manuscripts that don't have it. Now, I am inclined to believe that this was, as the ESV renders it, this was a part of the original text. But the good news about it is, is and I'm saying all this so that you understand, what I, uh, understand this point, is that if that's in there or not, it doesn't change the meaning of the text very much, does it? Because we're still dealing with a private sin 
We're still dealing with a sin that's, that's known by a very small group of people that must be dealt with, that must be confronted for the good of the brother, okay? So, so it doesn't alter the meaning at all. And that's how all of the textual variants that we are aware of in the Bible are that way, okay? Now, he starts off by saying, if your brother has sinned against you. But what all of us know is that Jesus just as well could have said, when your brother sins against you, right? That as much of what Jesus is doing here is not just telling us how to handle sin in the church, not to just handle when our brother has sinned against us, but to expect it, to expect it. See, what I've found to be true is that within the church, there is going to be hurt. There is going to be woundedness. Any of you that have been a part of a Christian community for more than 10 minutes knows that there is going to be hypocrisy there and there is going to be pain there and there is going to be sin there and there is going to be offense there. All of us are recovering sinners. All of us are in the process of being sanctified and made holy in the image of Christ. And as we are in that process, we're going to mess up. We're going to drop the ball. We're going to bring offense to each other. We're going to sin against each other. Now, for especially young Christians, and, and it's not just exclusively young Christians. I know uh, Christians that have been Christians for, 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 for decades, and, and, and it just depends on the circumstance and the situation. But especially for, for young Christians, we, you come into the church and you're zealous. And man, you're hungry for the kingdom of God, and you're hungry for the word of God, and, and, and you're kind of idealistic when you're a new Christian, right? I know I was. Like, when you're a new Christian, you come in and you think that everything is going to be awesome. All of the people in the church are going to be awesome. I remember, like, for me, growing up here, I thought this was literally the greatest church that had ever existed in the history of the world. Like, whatever Antioch, like, whatever, whatever uh, Church of Thessalonica, like, whatever Church at Philippi, Iron City Baptist Church is rocking it, all right? And so in my mind, this was always the greatest thing ever because you're idealistic. But what happens when you're idealistic? When somebody lets you down, when your expectations aren't meant, you are profoundly wounded. You are profoundly wounded. And for so many Christians, they have experienced pain in the church. They have had someone bring offense to them. They have had someone sin against them and it has sent them in a tailspin. Maybe they still come. Maybe, maybe they worship. Maybe they sing songs. Maybe they, they hear the word of God preached, but they hold everybody at arm's length. They don't connect into the life of the church. They don't serve within the life of the church. They don't, they don't really kind of want to just kind of come in, be anonymous, and step out. They want to hold everybody at arm's length because they can't risk being hurt again. They can't risk being wounded again. Hear the words of Jesus. What does he say? If your brother or when your brother has sinned against you, go to him. Go to him. Don't hold him at arm's length. That's what you're going to want to do. That's what's natural for you to do. Of course, when you've been vulnerable and that vulnerability has been used against you and you've been wounded and you've been hurt, you're going to want to back up and you're going to hold the church at arm's length. But don't hold the church at arm's length. No, go to him. Go to him that you might be restored in that relationship. Go to him that you might, be, might enjoy it once again, be reconciled with your brother when you've been hurt. Go to him so that you might be unified with your brother and so that your brother 
brother might be delivered from his sin. Go to him. Tonight, or this morning, I wonder if there are some of you that you've been hurt and you're holding the church right now at arm's length. You, maybe, maybe you've been holding the church at arm's length for, for months or years. I'd bet there's less joy in your Christian life right now than there was when you were in the church full speed. I bet there is less Christian joy in your life right now than when you were serving alongside your brothers and fellowshipping with your brothers and enjoying your brothers and fellowship with one another. I bet there's more tension and there is less satisfaction in your Christian wall. Brothers and sisters, don't go the way of the natural man. Don't hold the church at arm's length. Go to him. Come to Christ this morning and seek his forgiveness. If your brother has brought offense and you need to be reconciled to your brother, go to him and be reconciled this morning that you might enjoy what the Lord has given yet again. But there's two characters in our, story, in our text this morning. First, there is the one who, is, who has been sinned against, the offended party. But at the, at the very same time, I think Jesus is teaching us something about the offender. That Jesus is not just teaching about when we've been sinned against, but Jesus is at the very same time teaching us about when we sin against our brother. You see, we should expect that too. That's part of being a disciple of Christ. You see, as a disciple of Christ, you are always two things. You were always a disciple and a disciple maker simultaneously. So in other words, you will always be in a position of giving instruction and receiving instruction. You will always be in a position of giving correction and receiving correction. And as a recovering sinner yourself, as one who has been made in the image of Christ, as one who knows your own heart and your own motives and your own struggles, don't you think that there is a chance that you're gonna bring offense against your brother or sister in Christ? Don't you think that there is a chance that you're gonna handle a situation in a way that is less than spirit-filled, less than spirit-led, that could bring woundedness in the life of your brother? This is a significant deal because unity and purity in the church is at the very core of what Jesus is teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. And what he's teaching us, by, by giving us the steps that he gives us, what Jesus is teaching us is that regenerate hearts, hearts that have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, hearts that have, have believed in Christ and submitted themselves to Christ are hearts that can receive correction or hearts that can receive instruction because that is a heart that wants to honor Christ more than it wants to be comfortable. That's a heart that wants to bring glory to Christ more than it wants to be left alone. That is a heart that is so submitted to Christ where it says that when I get out of, out of line of godliness, when I begin to veer off the narrow and difficult path of sanctification, that my brothers and sisters, that my church, that those who love me would come and would gently nudge me back into the fold. As I go wayward, bring me back. And I'm telling y'all right now, if you see me falling into sin, I want to be in the flock, man. Like, I want you to bring me back into the fold. Don't let me fall off the cliff. Don't let me go wayward into the wilderness. No, if I'm the one that leaves the 99, come in pursuit of me, your brother, out of love. And so he's teaching us that if you fall away, that you must understand that Christ is empowering his church and empowering his disciples to bring correction into your life. And he is bringing correction into your life for what reason? Because he 
loves you. Because he loves you. Because of grace, because of mercy, because of kindness. Because Jesus knows that his disciples are those that will persevere until the end. Jesus knows that his disciples are those that will endure all things. And that correction is a part of discipleship. Christ says, no, listen, hear me, brothers. Hear me, my disciples. Hear me, my children. Be willing in humility with the humility of the little one, the humility of the little child to receive correction so that you can grow in godliness, to receive correction that you can grow in holiness, to hear reproof in your life. Have you ever considered that the correction that God brings into your life through another brother, through another sister, through a sermon, through the reading of the word, through the Holy Spirit is a gift of mercy and grace to you? Have you ever considered that the correction, the chastisement that comes into the life of the believer is correction that is intended to be an act of love viewed as a son looking to the heavenly father. And I, the text that I read to start off our service this morning was from uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And in verse 10, it says that God disciplines us that we may share in his holiness, that he brings discipline, correction into the lives of his children, that we may enjoy the fullness of the inheritance that has been given to us in Christ, that we may enjoy full and restored fellowship, not just with our church, but with God himself. That our correction is a gift from the Lord. Now in verse 15, which I think is, is, is the, the kind of the pinnacle of this whole thing, I want you to notice the language that he does use, right? He uses language like brother. He, he, he uses language like gain. Your, your Bible might say you have won your brother. You have won your brother. You have gained your brother. And just as an aside, like 95% of all correction never moves past verse 15, okay? This is not about a witch hunt. This is, this is, this is not about uh, torches and pitchforks. Like, this is not about like Salem witch trials kind of thing. Like 95% of the time, it's just one brother talking to another for the good of the other brother. But the language that Jesus uses is language that is family language, isn't it? It's family language. This isn't you going to an outsider. This isn't you going to a stranger. This isn't you going to someone that's in the world. This is you going to your brother. This is you going to your sister. This is about the good of the family. This is the parent that tells the child the wisdom that they have, even though the child isn't always anxious to receive it. This is, this is the father bringing discipline into the life of his daughter, even though it grieves him and it breaks his heart and he closes the door and cries when it's over. This is about the family. This is about the family. And you can see that because the goal of this is what? To gain your brother. The goal of this is, is nothing else. It is not to do anything else. It is only to win your brother, to gain your brother. This is not about vengeance. This is not about airing your grievances. This is not about you feeling better. This is not about you addressing your pet peeves in someone else's life. This is only about the good of your brother. This is only about what's going to bring gospel good into their life. This is only about what's gonna rescue them from a path of waywardness that is ultimately going to lead to their destruction. 
So that, that, that even in and of itself is a helpful lens for us. Like if we're wanting to bring corrupt, uh, correction or rebuke into the life of our brother, but we can't validate it as a sin in the Bible, or we don't see it as a, a pattern of sin in their life or a point of division within the church, then Proverbs says it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. But if we see that, that, that this is gonna bring destruction into their life, this is gonna bring division into the church, this is gonna bring hardship to them, this is a, a pattern, they are, they are plummeting toward a cliff from which they will fall to die, then we have the responsibility, not so that we are feel, feel better and not so that we are vindicated, but so that our brother is delivered, so that our brother is rescued. Think about what he's saying. You've been sinned against. You've been wronged. You've taken offense. So pursue your brother's good. Pursue your brother's good. Your brother has brought harm into your life. Your brother has, has wounded you. Your brother has hurt you. Your brother has scarred you. So pursue your brother's good. Y'all, that's crazy. That's crazy. See, the natural man wants vindication. The natural man wants his offender to hurt as badly or worse than he hurts. The natural man wants, wants the, 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 to be totally vindicated, publicly so. The natural man wants to destroy his offender's reputation. The natural man wants everybody to look down their noses in superiority to him. That's why this has to be supernatural. That's why this has to be supernatural. This is why we have to do this with the humility of the little one that comes to Christ, of the little child. This is why we have to do this with the heart of the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes in pursuit of the one who is wayward. Brothers and sisters, does this not sound like Christ? Does this not sound like Christ? Did Christ go to the cross for your good or for his good? Did Christ go to the cross because it was what was convenient for him and easy for him? Or did Christ go to the cross so that it would be for our good, that we might be delivered, that we might be rescued, that we might be reconciled to God and be made well with God and be given a new heart and a new life and a new eternal hope? What Jesus is calling us to as he calls us to correction in the life of discipleship is Jesus is calling us to the gospel. He's calling us to the gospel. How did Jesus correct Peter? How did Jesus restore his disciples? Like this, like this. Jesus is saying, follow me in grace. Follow me in mercy. Pursue your brother's good. Now, as I said, 95% of the time, it's not gonna get past verse 15. 95% of the time, there are two people that are aware of what happened. Two. Two. 95% of the time, this is just one brother with another brother. This is just one sister with another sister. Nobody else is brought in on the loop. Nobody else is in the situation. But what do you do when your brother or your sister is determined in their sin? What do you do when your brother or your sister is resolute to continue down the path of waywardness? What do you do when your brother or your sister is determined to, to continue embracing this pattern of sin, this pattern of destruction in their lives? You know what we normally do? Oh well, 
I tried, gave it a shot, had a conversation, washing my hands of it. Not really my deal. I got enough on my plate to worry about. I've got enough on my plate to, to have to deal with. I've got my own struggles. I got my own family. In fact, I got my own sin. So sorry, man, I tried. You didn't listen, I'm out. But what does Jesus paint the picture of? Jesus paints the picture of a relentless love, of a relentless love, of a relentless pursuit of your brother who is wayward that they might be restored into the flock. He says, no, they won't listen to you, perhaps even after repeated conversations, perhaps after even repeated tries. No, go to them, go to them together. Get, get you one or two other men and stay in pursuit of them. Love them too much to back away. Love them too much to stop. No, get one or two and go after them. Now, the, the text that Jesus is quoting this from is actually Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. And Deuteronomy chapter 19 has to do with the, the judicial life of Israel. So here, here's what they would do. So if you were gonna bring a charge against one of your fellow countrymen, one of your fellow brothers uh, among the people of God, then what the law held for you to do is that you had to have at least two or three witnesses that could verify that this had happened against you. That before you could go before the judge, you had to have these other witnesses that could validate and say, yes, it is as he has said that it is. And Jesus is saying that in the life of the wayward disciple, we as the church are to operate in a similar manner. That we as his fellow disciples, we within the family of God are to have a similar, uh, a similar model of operation as what Israel did back in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Now, it's important again to remember what the goal is here. The goal here is to verify that this is an offense. The goal here is to verify and to validate that this conversation actually needs to happen. That the goal here is to, to validate that, these, that your brother needs to be confronted in his sin so that your brother might be better off for it. So I think there's a real sense in what Jesus is doing is he is building in within the life of the church a mechanism that kind of tells you whether you should press on or back off of whether you should press on or back off. So that means that the goal here is not for you to build an alliance, okay? The goal here is not for you to build a posse, all right? This is not Wyatt Earp and all of his homeboys going to take down the OK Corral, all right? Like, that's not the picture here. No, we're talking about people that are mature in their faith. Not necessarily pastors, just mature believers. Believers that you know, knows the other person and knows you and has both of your best interests at heart. That cares about what both of you have uh, going on in your life that can speak some truth to you. And as being the disciple that's willing to receive correction, being a disciple of Christ that is humble as a little child that is going to Christ, you are one that when your brothers come and say, look, I hear what you're saying, but I think we might have a, a mountain out of a molehill situation going on here, that you're willing to back off, that you're willing to receive that, wor that word from them. And in your eyes, it's over. In your mind, it's over. The situation is resolved. The Lord, you have followed in faith what he has given to you to do. And so now you are backing off. You're, 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 gonna, you're gonna back away. Or if your brothers say, yeah, we've got to rescue this man's soul. 
We've got, we've got to step into the sexual immorality. We've got to step into the midst of this affair. We've got to step into the midst of this abandonment. We've got to step into the midst of this waywardness in his life. Because if we don't, he will self-destruct. He will destroy his soul. So let's go in. Let's go with, 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 with grace. Let's go with mercy. Let's go with gentleness. Let's go with love. But let us go nonetheless. That's the connection with verse 19. Read verse 19 with me. Verses 18 through 20, can I just, as an aside, just tell you that these are literally some of the most abused verses in like the whole Bible. You've probably heard all of these verses before in your Christian life, but just maybe never actually in the context that they were given. So let's read verse 19 together. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by Father in heaven. Now, there have been people that have just taken verse 19 out of Matthew chapter 18 and have said, look, we'll just come together, two or three of us, man, we'll play, pray for, for a new building that sees 2,000 people and boom, there it'll be. If we'll just come together and we'll just say, man, I'd really like to have a bins, we'll come together, we'll pray and boom, bins for the family, you know? Well, if we just come together, no matter what the element, no matter what the difficulty, if we'll just get two or three of us that will actually have faith, then we can come together and we can pray and that person will be set free from their element. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here, is it? Jesus is talking about life within the Christian community when it gets hard, when it gets hard. Jesus is talking about life within the Christian community when correction has to come about. When two or three brothers or sisters are going to another member of the family that has fallen away, seeking their good, here's what Jesus is saying. You don't know what to do? Come together and pray. You don't know what wise action to take? Are you having trouble discerning that which is right and that which is wrong? Are you having difficulty discerning that which is true and that which is false? Come together and pray. Seek the face of God together. Are you worried about the conversation that is to come? Come together and pray where two or three of you are gathered. If you want wisdom, do you not think my father will give you wisdom? If you want discernment, do you not think my father will give you discernment? Do you not think that if this is what my father has called you to do in the life of his church, that he will be there with you, that he will hear you and answer you out of his own grace and mercy and love for you and for the other person. So we go to this other person and we go pleading with God. We go praying before God Almighty, before his face on behalf of the other, interceding on their behalf, asking the Lord to open up their eyes, asking the Lord to transform their hearts, asking the Lord to guard our own steps from taking a step off the path of righteousness toward vindication or vengeance, to guard us from anger, to guard us from cruelty and from harshness, but to go in the fullness of the Holy Spirit that we might make manifest his fruit and bring grace and truth and life into the light of life of our brother. I'll tell you, this is a hard step. It sounds so easy to come together and pray, but I can tell you in the instances in my Christian life in which it has gotten to this level, the fasting and the praying were gut-wrenching. They were gut-wrenching. It was gut-wrenching to go up to your father in heaven on behalf of your wayward brother or your wayward sister and to plead with him. It was, it was the epitome of spiritual warfare as you feel weak yourself and impotent yourself, but praying we must as we remember the power of Almighty God that we do not go in our strength, we go in his supernatural, spirit-wrought 
power and authority for the good of our brother. Now it's important to notice here, you'll see, the goal here is always to keep the circle as small as possible, isn't it? There's no room for gossip. There's no place for gossip here. There's no place for disunity here. You do not want to destroy the reputation of your brother. You do not want to crush the soul of your brother. No, you want to keep the circle within the smallest group possible. Hopefully it's just going to be between you and him or you and her. If it has to be, if it must be for their good, you bring in one or two others, but nobody else, nobody else, just one or two others that you might go and pursue them and plead with them and pray for them before God himself. But if they are resolute, if they are determined, then you must bring it to the church, he says. And you can imagine that Jesus says this with all of the sobriety and the severity and the gravity with which it is intended to be. This is no small thing that Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if they are determined in their sin, then bring it to the church. I think the first step there is to bring it to the pastors, bring it to the leaders of the church. Let them plead with him. Let them, let them go for him. Let them pursue him. Let them call him to repentance. Let him, them pray for him. But if he has continued in his sin, and you must bring him before the church and you must exclude him from your fellowship. He says, the way Jesus says it is you must, you must treat him as though a, a Gentile or a tax collector. That means outside of the people of God. Now the good news there is, is Jesus was notoriously kind to tax collectors and sinners. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says that you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul goes on to, he distinguishes between those in the world. We are not talking about those that do not bear the name of brother. We are talking about those who claim they are in Christ, those who claim the name of brother, that we are to go and we are not to even eat with such a one so that they might understand the gravity of their sin and they might turn away knowing that the Lord is pursuing them and pursuing them with discipline, that they might turn back from their sin and be saved. That is the only reason you disfellowship is for the salvation of the person. It is because you have looked at the fruit of their life and the only evidence that is there is the evidence of ungodliness. The evidence that they are not yet in Christ, that they do not yet have the spirit. And so for their good, you tell them, you are not considered a brother. You are not considered a sister, but we plead with you to repent. We plead with you because you can this very second, this very moment, turn from your sin and come to Christ and we will receive you and Christ will receive you and heaven will rejoice over you. So come, come to Christ. Come back from your sin. Come back from your waywardness. Show the fruits of godliness in your life. In fact, the only sin which necessitates this step is the sin of unrepentance. There's no other sin, not murder, not an affair, not adultery, nothing. There is nothing that you can do 
that can forever exclude you from the church of Christ. There is nothing that you can ever do to exclude you from fellowship with Christ. If you will with all of your heart and submission and brokenness and contrition come to him and repent and give him your life, there is nothing from which he won't restore you. There is nothing from which he won't set you free. There is nothing from which he won't seek to bring good into your life. If you will just return, he will rejoice and he will rejoice more over you than over the 99 that have been wayward. This morning, some of you should return. Some of you should come to Christ. Some of you turn from your sin, turn from your waywardness and come to the open arms of Christ Jesus that the Father in heaven may rejoice over you. Come this morning. Your sin is not satisfying you. Your sin is not making you happy. Your sin, in fact, is destroying you. Hear my voice. Hear the Spirit of God. Hear the grace of the gospel and come to Christ today. Come to Christ today. And I'm telling you, you will not be excluded from the fellowship. You will be celebrated. Celebrated in the fullness of the gospel. You see, the significance of the church here cannot be lost. The significance of the church here cannot be lost. That church membership in the eyes of Jesus is a soul-saving necessity. Necessity. I've heard people say before that church membership is the creation of preachers. Our church membership is the creation of, of, of thinkers or theologians. No, church membership is the creation of Christ. Of Christ. For you cannot exclude someone from a fellowship that does not in some way exist. You cannot, you cannot exclude them from the membership of the church if there is no membership. No, church membership matters because it matters to Christ. It matters because it was installed by Christ, instituted by Christ. In fact, as David Platt says, isolation from the church reflects, in Matthew 18, separation from Christ. Isolation from the church represents separation from Christ. No, the church is used by God to sustain you. The church is used by God to correct you. The church is used by God to disciple you and to pour into you and to carry forth love and mercy and grace and kindness into your life. It is every single week to call you back to the gospel. Even as you are wayward, even as you are on the edge of rebellion, it is to have the preacher stand and preach and to call you back. It is to have the teacher in the Sunday school class to stand and teach and to call you back to the gospel again. It is to have, have a, a faithful brother or sister that just loves you to call you back again. No, it is a soul-saving necessity that God has given so that you might survive, so that you might thrive, so that you might make it. So brothers and sisters, I call on you to take church membership as seriously as Jesus does. Take it as seriously as Jesus does. Don't hold it at arm's length. Don't hold it out here. No, no, dive in so that you can be known. Dive in so that you can be corrected. Dive in so that you can be loved and ministered to. Dive in so that you can do the same for others. Dive in so that you can live out the gospel and be called back to the gospel day in and day out, week in and week out. And let the church provoke you to worship. How kind is God to give this to us? How gracious is God to give this to us? In our text, as we close, I want to point out to you that there are at least two promises in our text. At least two promises. 
As we head into the midst of difficulty, there are at least two promises given to us as the church as we carry out this gut-wrenching work in the name of Christ and in the name of love. The first promise is that you go with authority. You go with authority. Read with me verses 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is another one of those verses that's been terribly abused, particularly by the Catholic Church. And what the Catholic Church would say is that this means that Christ has given the church the authority to say you are forgiven or you are condemned. But that, in fact, is not what it is saying. If you'll remember, this is almost verbatim what Jesus said to Peter right after Peter said what? This, you are the living son of God. You are the Christ. And what does Jesus say? Yes, you only know this because my father has revealed it to you. So here's what he's saying. There's a connection there. That the church, insofar as it is built upon the revelation of God, insofar as it is built upon the word of God, insofar as it is built by the standards of God and the judgment of God, has the very authority of God behind it. That insofar as we hold fast to God's word and do what God's word says, then we have all of the authority of heaven as we go forward to do even what is gut-wrenching and difficult work. That the church has authority. We do not go with, with uh, we do not go wondering. We do not go hoping. We go knowing that if we go in the likeness of Christ, if we only make our judgments by the word of God and by the fruit of what it explains, then we go with the full fullness of Christ. And so Jesus is telling us and he is telling his disciples, don't be timid. Don't be timid. Be courageous. Have valor. Do this difficult things that I'm calling you to do, even though it's hard and even though it's impossible and even though you may not want to. Do them because you go in authority. You go in authority. Go and live against your culture. Walk and be the only person in your neighborhood that looks like the freak you are. Be the only person in your school that walks against the current. But don't do it timid. Because you do it with authority. You do it by the power of the word of God. You go, you carry forth, you act, you speak, you live with the authority of Christ, the authority of Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I am telling you that there is no organization and there is no institution and there is no military and there is no king and there is no president and there is no nation that has ever been under the sun of this creation that is mightier than the church when the church is committed to the word of God, living forth in the authority of God for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, you have authority as the church and the church has authority in your life. The second promise that Jesus gives us is I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Yeah, you're gonna have to go and you're gonna have to have a conversation with your brother that you don't want to have. You're gonna go, there's gonna be knots in your stomach. Your hand might tremble a little. You're gonna have to have a conversation that you're gonna replay in your mind a thousand times before you get there. Your knees might shake. You might not sleep the night before. You might not be able to eat that day for lunch. But you will not have that conversation alone. You will not have that conversation alone. He says, pray with me and I will answer you. I will answer you. 
Remember, I am always with you. Where two or three are gathered in my name, remember that the Spirit of Christ is in you. Remember, I am with you. It's the same thing he tells us in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. I am with you always to the end of the age. How glorious is our God that whenever there is something hard or difficult or gut-wrenching in the Scriptures, that he always reminds us that he is with us. He told this to Israel, didn't he? They went to the edge of Canaan and they said, there are giants there. There are giants there. They will slaughter us. But what did God tell his people? Remember that I am going with you. This morning, brothers and sisters, God loves you too much to leave you alone. God loves you too much to leave you without the church. God loves you too much to leave you without correction. God loves you too much to let you go and to self-destruct if you are in fact his child. This morning, would you embrace this love from him? Would you embrace this grace and this mercy and this gospel that he has brought to you? Let's go to the Lord together in prayer.